Well, we are in Exodus chapter 2, and you may be saying, well, I thought we were looking at the Ten Commandments since the series is called Ten, and we are. But we discovered last week that in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, God begins this by saying, and God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And what I see within those two verses is a backstory narrative that's almost imperative for us to understand and to be aware of before we truly appreciate the giving of the Ten Commandments. Hey, we could just jump right into Exodus 20 and begin to define what each of these Ten Commandments actually means and how do we use it today and what does it mean for me as a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to jump into all of that right away, but you wouldn't have the back story. You wouldn't have the back narrative. You wouldn't know the events and the experiences that the children of Israel had occurred in their lives unless we take a moment to understand and to read and to ramp up to Exodus chapter 20. Let me give you an example of how important a backstory narrative is to any circumstance in which you see. How many of you have ever come across a situation where you have seen possibly two people arguing and happen to overhear that argument because you're eavesdropping and because you're like, why, what, what are they arguing about? I want to know. And you're sitting there listening to them and you've already drawn conclusions about who's right or who's wrong. You know, oh, I totally agree with her. He's dirt. And of course the guy's saying, what? She's whacked, man. I agree with him. But what you don't have is any of the events that led up to that particular argument, do you? You have no idea what has transpired up until that point, and you are simply coming to conclusions based on the immediate, that in which you are hearing at the moment, and you really don't know what has occurred up to that. And how many times have you seen any type of scenario like that, drew a conclusion, then discovered the back narrative, and then found out your conclusion was incorrect? Yeah, I think we all do that. So God wants to remind his people that it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was I who brought you out of the house of bondage. And here are the commandments now that I'm giving you. And he wants you and I to understand that, that there is a purpose in which he is giving these Ten Commandments. And it is really found in the narrative that works up to chapter 20. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 2. Commentators have stated, that when it comes to the narrative of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2 are invaluable to understanding the entire story. It gives us our context in which to place the Ten Commandments. We begin with a persecuted people, a people there in Egypt who have been persecuted simply because they have been fruitful and because Pharaoh is now fearful of what may occur because of the overwhelming number of Jewish people there in Egypt. Starting with 70, 400 years later we have over 2 million. And the Egyptians are concerned, number one, that the Israelites would leave because their economy is based upon their uh, demographic, And secondly, they're concerned that if the Israelites ever decided to join one of Egypt's enemies, they would be 
defeated by the Israelites and whoever enemy they may work with. So he goes and now tries to radically resolve the problem. First, he institutes slavery, that is, Pharaoh. And when slavery in and of itself isn't enough, he then institutes extermination, asking that all male children be killed. And as we see it unfold, the most unlikely candidates step up because of their fear for God, sparing the male children, the midwives who Pharaoh encouraged to and ordered and commanded to, I should say, kill the male children of every Israeli Jewish parents. Then, when they refused to, he commanded that all children, and he asked that they be cast in to the river, and that the Egyptians would monitor the children of Israel, no matter who they were, and require that the male children be exterminated. I don't know about you, but already I see an incredible narrative backstory beginning to play out that's so important for us understanding the Ten Commandments. Now I understand a little bit more about the deliverance from Egypt. Now I understand a little bit more about the breaking of bondage from which the Jewish people were subjected to. I understand a little bit more clearly And now that the stage is set and a deliverance is required, God will now begin to prepare for that deliverance. And he begins with a child, a baby. And it's incredible as we see this unfold in the person of Moses' life and we see this just begin to paint before us in every verse. We see another stroke of God's hand involved in man and saving his people. We come to the story of Moses. And of course, even Moses just doesn't appear within the narrative. There is a leading up to him because God wants us to know the details. He wants us to understand how these things have come about. Do you realize that each and every one of you sitting here today has a what's called a backstory? All of the events of your life, all the experiences of your life have led you to this place here this morning. That's pretty overwhelming to think of. Just this week, my daughter and I went to Starbucks, and as we were going there, she shared with me a a kind of a revelation, an epiphany that she had concerning people, and that was, she said, Dad, do you realize that all these people here in Starbucks, all these people here at the mall today, all of them have individual lives, all of them have individual stories, all of them have individual experiences, and yet we are all converged at this moment in this one place. Kind of a fascinating thing to consider. This moment in time, we were all there, all of us, in Starbucks, overpaying for our coffee. <laughs> and as we were looking around, it's, it's almost fascinating to try to imagine all of the experiences, all of the events, everything that has occurred to that moment. 
Now, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can look over the landscape of your life and say, wow, isn't it amazing that all of these events, all of these experiences have brought me to this point. Now I'm going to throw one more thing for you to consider into the mix. What happens if all of it wasn't an accident per se? Or just random chance that was moving you along to this point? What happens if it was a hand of a mighty God that was moving you and bringing you to a place that you find yourself today? Even at moments where you never anticipated or never even could imagine that something was taking place larger than yourself. Can you imagine now looking back and seeing, oh, all those events that didn't make sense, now I understand them. Even the things that went horribly wrong, maybe, have brought you to this place today. We think of Moses, of course, coming down with the Ten Commandments, already experiencing God and having delivered the children of Israel and probably looking like Charlton Heston. But do you understand that it all started as him as a baby and his parents having to make one of the most difficult decisions that any parent would ever have to be required to make? And that is... I'm going to place my child in the hands of God. I'm going to trust and hope that my child's life will be spared. Difficult, difficult decision. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child... She hid him three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And so we begin. As the narrative of Moses begins to unfold... It starts with him as an infant. What an incredible time to think and to consider having a family. Knowing that Pharaoh is looking to destroy male children and yet trusting God to do so. Trusting God that he was going to see it through. Trusting God that they could have a child and that God would be in control and just let it play out as God would have it to play out. The reason I bring this up is that I have spoken with many Christian parents, newlyweds, considering a family, and saying maybe we shouldn't have children because look at how bad the world is now. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in 20 years? And what I hear in that is that fatalism. Not thinking or believing or trusting God to do something extraordinary throughout it all. Will it be difficult? Yes, it's difficult now. But does that mean that we should no longer considering having children just simply because it's going to be difficult? I can understand wanting to spare them from all of those things. I understand that, but should that... Keep us from having children, Christians. 
One person even said to me, yeah, I'm going to, have, I'm going to be pregnant. I'm going to go through the nine months of pregnancy, and right before I deliver, the rapture is going to happen. I'm like, wow, you just got it all figured out. Let's trust God. Here, a Levite couple trusted God enough to, to have another child. This was their third. For Miriam and Aaron were already born. And so now let's have a third, and it is a boy. And just like all parents, they are convinced he's a beautiful child. You know, every child that is born is a beautiful child. Sometimes the pictures don't reflect that, though. (laughs) And I had to learn very quickly in my pastorate how to react when someone hands me a picture of their infant firstborn. What not to do is this. Oh, my Call prayer meeting now! Wrong course of action. But every child is a beautiful child. But there was something distinguishedly uh, apparent about Moses that caught their eye. One translation calls him a fine child. It's reiterated in the New Testament and I believe uh, Acts 7 or Hebrews 11 where it talks about that he was a beautiful child. There was just something about him. And every parent can say that. There's just something about my child. And for three months, his parents got to raise him and take care of him, love on him. But then it got too dangerous. And they had to make a decision. The edict from Pharaoh was that all children must be thrown into the river. And they obeyed to a certain point, did they not? But giving Moses every chance of survival, she made a basket with reeds and covered it with pitch so it would float and then placed it in the reeds on the bank of the Nile River. And then Miriam, his sister, began to look from a distance to watch to see what would happen to that baby, that infant, that child. Can you imagine the faith that it required Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, to... To, to take their child to the river and to place him there and to leave him there. Would that be difficult? Moms, would that be difficult? Oh my, yes. Oh my, yes. But they were going to trust God. They were going to trust God by faith. How do we know that? The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews eleven twenty three, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith they brought him to the river's edge. And Miriam watched from a distance. The deliverer needs to be delivered. An experience in his life that he would never forget. An experience in his life that he would be reminded of, obviously, as he grew, not knowing at the moment what has occurred, but what occurred afterwards. He would grow knowing this, that it wasn't abandonment. His parents were not abandoning him. They were trying to save him. They were going to do all that it takes to hopefully spare his life. And by placing him there in the river, they were saying, we're going to trust God here at this moment. We're going to trust the Lord. And we're going to allow the Lord to work it out as he sees fit. 
And how does he? Verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Her and her maidens walked along the river side, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maids to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Can you imagine this? Some speculate that they knew that Pharaoh's daughter was going to arrive at that moment. It's speculation. It's conjecture. We have nothing to confirm that with. We know that they placed the child in the reeds, which would have probably kept the child away from the center of the river, a place where the the reeds would have held the basket in a certain position. And it was common for the Egyptian women, especially royalty, to come down to the river and to bathe and to have the maids walk along the side of the river to discover if there were unwanted guests within the river such as a crocodile, an alligator, a hippopotamus, etc. That would bring your bath to a complete halt, would it not? And to their surprise, they find this basket. And as Pharaoh's daughter opened it and heard the cries, her heart was moved with compassion. Now some may cry, coincidence, or it was all planned by the parents of Moses. But I say to you, there's something more happening here. God is working in all of these things, bringing about His purposes, interacting with His creation, allowing these things to occur to bring up and to prepare Moses for the mission in which Moses is going to be commissioned with. Before God works Through anyone, he must first work in them. He must prepare them for what he has for them. And this was all part of the preparation. I see God's hand already being um, moved here. I see faith being exercised by the parents of Moses. I see grace being extended to Moses, happening to find Pharaoh's daughter finding the ark and allowing the child to live, even though the edict of her father was to have the child destroyed. One commentator wrote this, A baby's tears were God's first weapons in the war against Egypt. Moved with compassion. Miriam, looking from afar off, now sees that the princess has found the child and willingly approaches the princess, which was something that didn't occur. A slave just didn't go up to royalty and interact with them. She took a step out in faith. She could have been killed for what she was about to do. And then to suggest a course of action for this child that's already condemned to death, but seeing that Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, wants to have compassion upon him, suggests a nurse for the child, and guess who they select to be the nurse? The child's mother, verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, 
So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. I don't know how you don't see the hand of God in every step of this narrative. Those who want to constantly tell us that God is just simply a, a deity that is out there and is unwilling to get involved in the affairs of men, how do we not see his, his gracious hand carrying this infant along through these means? How do we not see it? From the hands that placed him into the basket, from the hands that placed him into the river, from the hands that picked him up out of the river, from the hands that took him back to his mother to be nursed once again, and then having his mother once again having to give up her child back to Pharaoh's daughter. You think that was tough? And yet all of this occurs. This is the background that allows us to understand why the Ten Commandments have been given. This is the process in which God has architected to make sure that the deliverance of his people from Egypt would take place. I can't believe that we would say that God isn't involved in our lives on a daily basis. How do you not see the grace of God day by day in your own personal life? How do you not see now in the context of your Christianity and your faith in Jesus Christ being given to you as the context to determine and to understand all the events of your life to that point. One commentator wrote this, God used a baby's tears to control the heart of a powerful princess. And he used Miriam's words to arrange for the baby's mother to raise the boy and to get paid for it. And in returning to Egypt, being returned to Pharaoh's daughter, he grew in a place of prominence and privilege there in the land of Egypt, where Stephen says to us in Acts 7, And Moses was learned in all wisdom of Egypt and was mighty in words and deeds. Forty years has now transpired between verse 1 and verse 10. That's what the narrative gives us. But you can imagine the day by day, can't you? You can consider it. I know that I have personally come to the place in my life where I talk in the the units of decades now. When I was a kid, it was in the units of hours. You know, and when my mom and dad would ask us in September what we want for Christmas, torture. It went by so slowly. We weren't counting the days or the weeks. We were counting the minutes and the hours. My sister actually used to take the pictures out of the Sears catalog. There was this catalog by this company called Sears. They used to own a tower here in Chicago. And she used to cut them out, and she made like this little book. And this was her checklist, so at Christmas she could check off the gifts after she got them. One of the funniest stories, and i got to tell you this, I haven't said this story in a long time, but at, when I was older, in my teens, my mom and dad said, you know, we don't want to get you a bunch of little gifts anymore. We want to get you one big gift. 
And so what would you like that gift to be? We really want to get you something that you want and need and so forth. And I said, oh, I want this new guitar. And I gave them the model. I gave them the amount. I told them where they could find it. I said I would go with them to make sure it was okay before they purchased it. I did everything. And I was fully convinced that they were set. You know, sometimes you have to be careful that parents really listen to you. I thought they were set in what they were going to buy me for Christmas. And then I could tell after they bought it, because there was like this relief, like, oh, well, we got you your present, you're all set, you're really going to enjoy it, and we know it's something you really need. And I was convinced I really needed that guitar. I didn't want it, I needed it. I could not survive. My social standing in high school depended upon this guitar. And so I'm waiting again for Christmas. Now in my teens, I was about 16, 17, maybe a little bit older, 18 years old. No, I was still in high school, so 16, 17 years old. Christmas Day comes, and I knew I was going to get one big gift. And so I went out to the Christmas tree with my sister, who wouldn't let me sleep any longer, my younger sister, and I said, great, finally, the guitar is here. I had a place for it in my room. The lights were just set down it properly. You know, nobody touch it. Nobody can even look at it. It was it, perfect place. And I get there, and I'm looking around, and there is no guitar. And my mom and dad are like, Merry Christmas, Eric. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's no guitar. No, 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 it's up against the wall over there. Oh, no problem. Dad. And I went around to the other side of the Christmas tree, and my present was up against the wall. Do you know what it was? This is a true story. A mattress. My parents got me a mattress. One big gift that they thought I needed. I never thought that I would be in a place that socks and underwear sound more appealing at that moment. So here I am, Christmas morning, carrying my mattress into my bedroom. Unbelievable. So kids, be careful with your requests to your parents. Make sure... No, I'm kidding. I have no idea why we even brought that up. But that being said, (laughs) counting the time, hours, minutes as a younger child, then days, then weeks as we get older. But then you get to the point where you say decades. Remember the 70s? Remember the 80s? Remember the 90s? Remember the double aughts or whatever we called them? The new millennium? I'm I'm in that realm now. Forty years have transpired between the birth of Moses and where he is today. He has learned, he has grown in the wisdom that Egypt has to offer. And what did that entail? Listen to this. What did it involve by him being learned in all the wisdom of Egypt? Egypt had a highly developed civilization for its time particularly in the areas of engineering, mathematics, and astronomy. Thanks to their knowledge of astronomy, they developed an amazingly accurate calendar for that time. And their engineers planned and supervised the construction of edifices that are still standing to this day. Their priests and doctors were masters at the art of embalming, and their leaders were skilled in organization and administration. Visitors to Egypt today can't help but be impressed with the accomplishments of the ancient people. The servant of God should learn all that he can and dedicate it to God and faithfully serve God. And Moses learned all of this, 40 years old now at this point. But something begins to change in his heart. 
The realization and the knowledge of who his true identity actually is now seems to be apparent at age 40, and he wants and desires to now look upon the burdens of his people. And he goes and he sees it for himself, the injustices taking place to the children of Israel, and he tries to make something happen in and of himself. The deliverer who once needed to be delivered now becomes the self-appointed deliverer. He tries to do it in and of himself. He tries to make it happen, only to have it miserably fail before him. Verse 11, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. He came to a point, now realizing his true identity, learning all that he could learn of the Egyptian system. Learned, wise, greatly educated, a place of prominence in the royal family. And yet something burdened his heart. Pretty much you can say that he had all that the Egyptian world would have to offer, a place of prominence and power, a place of privilege, a place of education. Every need that he ever had or want would be satisfied simply because of who he was. But yet there was something more. He now comes to the realization of his true identity. Sees his brethren as he writes here under this oppressive means, and can no longer continue in the manner in which he did. As Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is giving an account before the religious leaders there in Jerusalem, he says, Now when he, that is Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. A self-appointed deliverer. There was already something working in him. He could not allow this injustice to continue. And it provoked him and it moved him. However, though, the next day when he came out again and saw two Hebrew people fighting, and he tried to once again be a self-appointed deliverer and try to rectify the situation, they rejected him completely. As Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26 says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And when he discovered that the Hebrews had learned of what he had done, even though his sin, he had thought that he had hid it, It came to Pharaoh's attention, and now Pharaoh began to persecute him and began to pursue him. And he fled there to Midian. At 
40 years old. He has now lost everything that he had, but for Moses that wasn't a problem. He chose to identify himself with his people rather than the people of Egypt. He did not want the pleasures of sin that simply last for a moment, but he wanted that reward. He felt it and esteemed the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. And now he is on the run. And he was rejected by the two Hebrew people. And this is the last thing that he has of Egypt. Rejected as their deliverer, fugitive on the run from Pharaoh, the king. And as, he, as Stephen tells us, for he supported, supposed, excuse me, that his brethren would understood that God would deliver them by his hands, but they did not understand. The timing wasn't right. The scenario and the stage hadn't been perfectly set. This is where we see man's timing and God's timing once again out of sync. And God then delays the process to align his timing perfectly and to allow his perfect plan to unfold exactly the way he intends it to unfold in history. I don't know about you, but there are times when I believe that my timetable is superior to God's. God, we're ready. We're ready for you to bless Calvary Chapel Cardinal and just bring in thousands of people and seeing them come to saving faith. And then you think about it for a moment. If you came to church next Sunday and saw 2,000 people, you would initially rejoice. Praise God! Look at what God is doing! And then you'd say... Oh my goodness, we only have 100 chairs. Standing room only. And then there would be those amongst the crowd who would say, Remember when it was such a cute and quaint church? Remember when you could walk in and Don would hand you your cup of coffee and know that you like two creams and two sugars? And he always had your favorite place within the sanctuary. Remember when those days were so great? We have a tend to romanticize the past, don't we, and forget about the realities of the difficulties that we have once left. And many Christians tell me that after they become Christians and they're walking with the Lord for a while and they said, I just remember being in the world and it was just so much fun. Really? Really? How forgetful can you be? How forgetful can you be of the devastation of sin upon your life? God's timing is always perfect. God knows exactly when he needs to do what he needs to do. Moses wasn't ready yet. He had the desire. He had the burden. He tried to make it happen. And all that occurred is he is now on the run. Finds himself hundreds of miles away in Midian. Sitting next to a well with absolutely nothing. I thought they'd understand that they were going to be delivered by my hand. But they didn't. Look with me here in verse 16. God's not done yet. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the trough to water their father's flock. Then shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock, delivering again, stepping in the injustice. And not only does he help the women, but then waters the flock for them. 
To me, that shows that he is learning. And I'll show you why in just a minute. In verse 18, when they came to Raul, Arul, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? Meaning, how did you get done so quickly? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hands of shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Sipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called the name of his son Gershom, for he said, I am been a stranger in a foreign land. And now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant or promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Moses wasn't ready. And what has just occurred between verses 11 and 25 is another 40 years. When we ramp into chapter 3, he's going to be about 80 years old at this point. But notice that when he got there, not only did he deliver the women from the hands of the shepherd who were trying to steal from the well, but he also then drew the water for them. He also then married and a family began and he had a son. But even the son reminded him of the fact that he was a stranger in a foreign land. But through all of these circumstances, the heart of Moses was changing. It wasn't only that he was going to be deliverer, but he was also going to be uh, looked at as the father of the uh, Jewish nation, Abraham, and then Moses. He knew that his, God knew that Moses' heart for the people needed to be that of his own heart. How do you change the heart of a person? And God uses simple circumstances. By Moses loving his wife, by Moses loving his child, by Moses tending to the sheep as a shepherd there for those 40 years, the heart of Moses was changing. And through that change of heart, he saw things in a different light. I will tell you, in my personal life, my heart has completely changed from the moment I became a pastor to pastor this church to this day. God has given me a heart for people. And a love for people that I never had before. And it's a work of God in my life. And that developed through my marriage. As I learned to love my wife as Christ loves the church. My heart grew even more when I had my daughter. And I had a, found a love that I never thought that I could personally experience in my own life. When I saw my daughter for my very first time. It was there. Incredible. These things have changed my attitude towards people. As God was preparing Moses and working in Moses to allow him to become the deliverer that he needed to be, 
God allowed this failure to occur. God allowed this fugitive to then go on the run. God allowed these things to occur because he was preparing Moses. He was shaping Moses. He was getting Moses ready and prepared for what he was about to do next. God must work in us before he works through us. One commentator wrote this, Moses' failure to help free the Jews must have devastated him. That's why God took him to Midian and made him a shepherd for 40 years. He had to learn that deliverance would come from the, from the hand of God and not from his own personal hand. Preparation. I bring these things to your attention because I want you to understand that God is working in your life in the same manner. Each experience, each event, because all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Understand that God is preparing you to play a role in the redemptive drama that we are all participants in. None of us have been called to inactivity in the body of Christ. All of us have been called to something. All of us are here and meant to fulfill a a specific purpose within the body of Christ. But God must first prepare you for that purpose in means that you may never ever thought were necessary. It's incredible to me. When I think about this, I think about this insight that the man who was mighty in word and deed in all things in Egypt is not in a lonely pasture taking care of stubborn sheep. But that was just the kind of preparation that he needed for the leading of the nation of a stubborn people. God was working in him. And then at that right moment, at that perfect time, God once again heard the groanings of his people. See, not only was God preparing Moses, but he was preparing the people. God knew, obviously, that it was going to have to get so bad before the people wanted to leave. And now they were ready. And now it was time to send the deliverer back to Egypt. One wrote here, God's delays aren't evidence of unconcern. For he hears our groans, sees our plights, feels our sorrows, and remembers his promises towards us. What he promised, he will perform, for he never breaks his promise with his people. And when the right time comes, God immediately works. Each one of you have a backstory narrative that has led you here today. The events of your life have brought you here today. Good, bad, those in the middle have brought you here to this moment. I remember when I was a high schooler, this was just a year before I got saved, where I cried out to God on a porch there in the suburbs of Chicago, cried out to God and asked Him to forgive me of my sins and asked Him to be my Lord and Savior. A year before that, I was in a horrific car accident. The young lady in whom I was hoping to date and hoping to get to know, I was following home one day in a car with my buddies. I was going to beat up her boyfriend and then ask her out. That was my dating plan at the moment. I don't recommend it to anybody, by the way. Well, we wanted to show off. And so when they stopped, we zipped around them. 
we were in a very fast car, and that car on a side street, we were up to 55 miles an hour. The street turned, we didn't, and went into a light post at 55 miles an hour. The car went up about three to four feet. The back end of the car didn't when we hit the post. And then the ambulance workers and the paramedics and the police officers saw me, because I was in the passenger seat of the front seat, and said, young man, do you understand that the only thing that held you in that car was the sun visor being down? And I never forgot that. And I did begin to date that young lady. I never beat up her boyfriend, though. And one day I came to a point in my life where I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and I remembered that incident and I said, my life hangs in the balance, not my temporal life, my eternal life, based upon what I do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Home life was getting very difficult. I was angry constantly. I had no future whatsoever in, in front of me. And one day, that young lady's father brought me out to the porch of their house and she, I thought he was going to lay into me. I thought he was going to just rebuke me because I got their daughter home late. And yet he sat me down and he said, Eric, I'm going to tell you the most important thing that I've ever told anyone and I need you to listen to me. You need Jesus Christ. He knew I was an angry young man. He knew I was always mad. He knew that things were difficult for me at home. And he says, you need Jesus. You're going to wind up in prison. You're going to wind up really regretting your decisions going forward if you don't come to Jesus Christ and understand your life hangs in the balance. He said that to me, and I still had the imagery of that car accident. And the next thing I knew, I was on my knees on that patio crying out to God and asking him to save me. And you know what? He did. He heard a 16-year-old boy there in Elk Grove Village. And my life has never been the same to this day. He has changed my heart completely. When I was serving as an assistant pastor at the church, my pastor saw that God was possibly leading me to become a pastor of a church but I wasn't quite ready just yet. And I just didn't have that, that call, that passion, that burden for that type of ministry. Until one day I was invited out to a Bible study, and in that Bible study there was a teacher who was absolutely taking advantage of those new believers in that Bible study, teaching them heretical doctrine. And I was listening, specifically because I had been invited there to listen to these people and to listen to the teaching. And the people of that Bible study had approached Dina and said, can you please have Eric come? We know he's a man of God. We know he's a man of the Word. Can you please have him come out and listen? And I did. And I knew the teacher. He was a very intellectual, a very smart individual. But what he was teaching these people was absolutely inaccurate and incorrect. So I waited there. I felt as if I was literally, I was nauseous. I, I was so anxiety-ridden. I didn't know what was going to happen next. So I just quietly cried out to God and said, God, if you would have me to say anything, 
make it apparent. At the end of the Bible study, the teacher said to the, those that were there, I don't want anybody to ask any questions who hasn't read or previously read of that passage beforehand because we do not answer unintelligent questions. You get kind of an idea. Oh, and if you were a woman, you were not allowed to ask a question in this Bible study because they are to learn in silence. And my heart is grieved inside of me. And I sat there with my head hanging low, praying and asking God for wisdom. And then the teacher looked right at me and says, I know Eric, and he is a godly man, and he knows the word very well. I'm very interested, Eric, to hear your thoughts on the study tonight. God is at the open door. And I remember raising my head, and the Spirit just filled me at that point. And I don't know where it was coming from, but I was able to refute things that I didn't think possible. Articulating the word... And then I rebuked him at the end for taking advantage of these people, these new Christians, teaching him such things. And he left very frustrated, and he left, and the people of his cronies left with him. And I prayed with the Bible study that was there. And in that prayer, I just asked, Lord, send someone to them that would love them and feed them. I went home that night. And I prayed again, Lord, please just send that Bible study, someone that would love them and feed them. And the next day they called me and asked me, would you come and lead our Bible study? I never knew God was going to choose me. And that's when I began to love people. And that's why I take heresy and false doctrine so seriously. That Bible study is this church today. That's the way God prepares his people. I have countless number of scenarios just like that, where God prepares his people. God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Have you ever considered what you have experienced in your life? And have you ever considered that it may be an experience that is preparing you for the service in which God would call you to? Have you ever thought that God was looking to use you for the purposes of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, you, because if God can use me, He can use anybody. Have you thought that your life and all the events that didn't seem to have any kind of context, any kind of background, were leading you to this point today? This point today. And as we close with communion this morning, I want you to consider these things. Our God is a God of preparation. Our God is one who works in us before He works through us for His purposes and His plans. And God has a purpose and plan for you within the body of Christ. And as we come before Him this morning, let us be reminded of that. Let us take communion and remind us ourselves that the reason that this is all possible is because on that day another baby was born. Another baby was being hunted and persecuted and had to flee. Another baby grew up in very difficult scenarios and watched the suppression and oppression of his people under the Roman oppression. That there was another individual who grew and taught in the temple and there's another individual who was baptized and the Spirit of God came before him and it was announced that he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. 
And there was that, uh, that individual who then went to the cross and made all of this possible. And then that individual rose on the third day. It's all about Jesus. But God prepares us. He works in us to work through us. And God can use anybody for anything. 